Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Certainly missed seeing you last Sunday, but it's good to be back together this Sunday. As Jim mentioned, it's been a challenging week for our church, for sure. Um, The loss of our brother, Aaron Von Barron. I think the best thing we can do in circumstances like this is just encourage one another with the hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think the best way we can do that is to open the word of God this morning. So if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we've been in the middle of a series on the gospel of Luke. That coincided perfectly with the Christmas season, Luke 1 and 2. But this morning we are in Luke chapter 3, making our way through a series on the gospel of Luke. And certainly it's our prayer this morning that God would use his word to encourage us and remind us of the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do pray now as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 3 that you would indeed encourage our hearts this morning. Lord, we know that there are a variety of challenges that are represented in this room today. There's people who are coming in weary and heavy laden. But we also know, we also know that when we come to you, there's rest to be found. And so, Lord, we pray that we would find rest in your word today. God, we pray that we would find joy in your word today. We pray that we would find hope in your word today. And that we would find all those things because your word points us to the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us this morning to hear your word loudly and clearly. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would help us to see who you are more clearly. And that when we leave here, we would leave here worshipers. Lord, please help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So about this time a year ago, Tanya and I were at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We actually ended up staying there for a period of about three weeks as doctors tried to figure out what was going on with my wife. Looking back that time at Mayo was a complete whirlwind. We went from one appointment to the next, one test to another. In the end, I don't know what the final count was in terms of doctor visits or tests run or amount of blood drawn. But needless to say, there's a lot of activity in a short amount of time. And at this point, a year removed, all that activity kind of blends together in my mind. Quite simply, there's a lot I just don't remember. But one thing I do remember about our trip to Mayo is that we were always doing research in between appointments. If a doctor mentioned a certain disease or condition, we would meticulously research that disease or condition to see if it fit with Tanya's symptoms. And we, and we would also research the doctors themselves. The way our experience at Mayo worked is that we didn't have a ton of appointments set up before we went to Rochester. Instead, we had an appointment with one main doctor who met with us and then recommended that we would meet with certain specialists. And then when we met with those specialists, they might recommend that we meet with another specialist. It was a bit of a cascading effect. One appointment would lead to another, to another, and then to another. And each time we got an appointment set up with a new specialist, we would start to research that particular doctor. We would ask questions like, well, what is their specialty? What diseases do they work with the most? Where have they been a doctor previously? Where were they educated? What types of ratings do they get from their patients? In short, we ask the question, what are their credentials? And depending upon what we discovered in our research regarding their credentials, we would go into that meeting with the specialist either with optimism or skepticism. And although there may have been a few times where we were pleasantly surprised or maybe other times where we were negatively surprised, most of the time our research ended up being pretty predictive. If the person had good credentials that fit well with Tanya's symptoms, generally speaking, the appointment was helpful. If the person did not have good credentials, oftentimes the appointment was not as helpful. In other words, who the doctor was and the types of things they brought to the table mattered. If they were well-educated in the particular area that Tanya needed help, had experience in that area, if they were good with patients, it was a good experience. Conversely, if they lacked those things, it was not a good experience. So based upon our time in Mayo, I think I can say this confidently. In the medical world, credentials do matter, at least to some degree. The type of experience the doctor has, the things they've researched, their bedside manner, all those things are important. 
but it's not just the medical world in which credentials are valuable. Whether we're picking a car mechanic or a plumber or a caterer, we want to know the credentials of the person that we're looking to get help from. Now, obviously, the credentials for a car mechanic are going to look much different than the credentials for a cardiologist. But at the end of the day, we want to know who is this person? What qualifications do they have? How can they be helpful? Credentials matter. And perhaps that's why Luke says what he does at the end of Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 4, the ministry of Jesus Christ is going to begin in earnest. But before Luke starts telling us what Jesus did and said, he first wants us to understand at the end of Luke chapter 3 who Jesus is. Or to say it another way, before Luke begins to describe the ministry of Jesus, he first gives us Jesus' credentials. He reminds us of who Jesus is and what qualifications he brings to the table. Now granted, the way in which Luke does this may not be what we would expect. Rather than simply listing all of Jesus' qualities and resume-like fashion, Luke instead helps us understand who Jesus is by recounting Jesus' baptism and then informing us about Jesus' genealogy. It's a bit of an unorthodox approach, at least from our modern perspective, but it's extremely effective. Because in recounting Jesus' baptism and in giving us Jesus' genealogy, Luke helps us to better understand who is Jesus. Or to use the terminology that we've been using this morning, through both the baptism story and the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Luke gives us Jesus' credentials. He helps us understand who Jesus is and why Jesus is qualified to do what he does. So that said, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point as we turn our attention to the Word of God here. Luke 3, 21 to 38 is our passage this morning. Words will be on the screen here shortly, or you can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But I would remind you that this is the Word of God. In fact, the reason we stand is just to remind ourselves it is the Word of God, and as such, it's due our reverence. So Luke 3, starting in verse 21, Luke writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maeth, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Metata, I don't think I said that right, by the way, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Naor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arvaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You may be seated. Now, if you're trying to put together a list of Jesus' credentials, let's be honest, it wouldn't take long for that list to become very, very lengthy. The amount of things that Jesus brings to the table is nearly endless. So before we dive into the content of the passage that we just read, 
Let me just say this clearly. Based upon what we read in Luke 3 regarding the baptism and genealogy of Jesus, there are three specific credentials of Jesus I want to point out this morning. But what I want to be clear about is in no way am I suggesting that these credentials or the list of credentials we're going to look at is meant to be exhaustive. Now, I think all three credentials that we're going to mention of Jesus from Luke 3, 21 to 38 are important. They're crucial in helping us to understand who Jesus is. But hear this, there are a lot more things that we could say about Jesus and his credentials other than what we're just going to point out this morning. So I want you to keep that in your back of your mind as we discuss Luke 3 today. What we read in this passage is important, it's encouraging, it's helpful in allowing us to better understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. But by no means is it exhaustive. The great thing about Jesus is that his resume doesn't really end. He has qualification upon qualification upon qualification. His credentials are exhaustive and impeccable. So our list of credentials here from Luke 3, again, hear me, is not exhaustive. But having said that, I think it is helpful for us to zero in on these credentials of Jesus that we see in Luke 3. And again, in light of what we read in Luke 3, I think there are three specific credentials of Jesus that are highlighted in his baptism and in his genealogy. Credential number one, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse 21 and in the first half of verse 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form, like a dove. Now the fact that Jesus was baptized at all by John the Baptist is really interesting. As we talked about last week, John the Baptist went into the wilderness and proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which raises a natural question. Why would Jesus need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins if he was sinless? I think the short answer to that question is that he did not need to be baptized, but he chose to be baptized in order to both affirm the ministry of John the Baptist and also to publicly identify with the sinners he came to save. But setting aside the discussion of why Jesus was baptized, it's worth noting that here in Luke 3, the baptism itself is barely mentioned at all. We're not even officially told here in this passage who baptized Jesus, although we're left to assume it was John the Baptist, and the other gospel accounts would affirm that. But in general, there's just very little detail about the actual baptism. And given the lack of details about the baptism itself, it's clear that Luke's focus here in verses 21 and 22 is not on the actual baptism, but rather on what happened as Jesus was praying after the baptism. Because as Jesus prays, two significant things happen. The first is that the heavens are open and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Now what this actually looked like is a bit mysterious. Luke doesn't tell us the Holy Spirit descended as a dove, but rather like a dove. So perhaps Luke is just meaning to tell us the Holy Spirit floated down gracefully through the air like a dove. Or, or maybe it did, the Holy Spirit, he did have a, a dove-like appearance. But either way... Luke is clearly communicating that somehow the Spirit descends on Jesus in a visible way, in bodily form. But the most important thing that we learn here is the Holy Spirit did descend, and he descended specifically on Jesus. Now, almost certainly, especially in coordination with what the voice from heaven will say in just a little bit that we'll read, this is an allusion to the Old Testament prophecy that Jim read earlier in Isaiah 42, and specifically Isaiah 42, verse 1. In Isaiah 42, 1, God says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. When the spirit descends on Jesus, we're meant to understand Jesus is that servant. 
who was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, the one who would bring forth justice to the nations. The Holy Spirit descending here is significant because it reminds us Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It's also significant for reasons that Peter explains in Acts 10, 37, and 38. Peter talks about how the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism was an act of anointing, in which Jesus is being set aside for ministry. Again, he's being set aside or identified as the servant who would come to rescue the people. So do not mistake the baptism of Jesus as a cute magic act in which doves magically appear to wow the crowds. Now, on the contrary, what's happening here is the Holy Spirit is descending on Jesus. There's nothing magical about that. In fact, we're not even sure a dove was involved at all. But instead, what's happening here is a declaration that Jesus is the anointed one, the servant who would come to carry out God's justice. So that's the first credential of Jesus that we see here in this passage. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see that Jesus was the Son of God. So two significant things happen at the baptism of Jesus. I mentioned one already. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. The second is there's a voice from heaven declaring the identity of Jesus. Verses 21 and 22 again. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now let's be clear here, the voice from heaven seems to be the voice of God himself. And God makes this statement regarding Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is one of two times in the Gospel of Luke that God makes a divine statement regarding the identity of Jesus. And in both cases, here in Luke 3 and then later on in Luke 9 in the Transfiguration, God essentially declares the same thing. Here in Luke 3, he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In Luke 9, he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So in both instances in the Gospel of Luke, in which God speaks directly of Jesus, he identifies Jesus as his son. This is not an accident. And clearly, Luke is wanting us to understand through what God is saying that Jesus is the son of God. Now this language of son is also Old Testament language, this time from Psalm 2. And so in speaking of Jesus as his son, with whom he's well pleased, on top of the fact that the Spirit is descending on Jesus, we see that Luke here and ultimately God are using language from both Psalm 2, 7 and Isaiah 42, 1 to confirm that Jesus is the Messiah, the servant who would come to rescue the people, the son that he delights in. Now we should be clear in saying this, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus and the voice from heaven declaring the identity of Jesus did not make Jesus the Messiah, or for that matter, make him the Son of God. God is not conferring on Jesus a new status here at his baptism. Rather, he's simply confirming who Jesus already is. He is the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Son of God. Now in saying that Jesus is the Son of God, we need to be straightforward in saying this. In the rest of the New Testament, it's clear not only is he the Son of God, but he is God. And in that lies the great mystery of the Trinity. There's one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. And the Son is not the Spirit of the Father. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And yet, there's just one God. One God in three persons. It is gloriously mysterious. And Luke is at least alluding to that glorious mystery here in Luke chapter 3. Jesus is the beloved Son. He's the Son of God, and yet, as the rest of the gospel make clear, He is God. And so at the baptism of Jesus, we see these two key credentials of Jesus, that He was anointed by the Spirit, He was the Son of God. 
But there's a third key credential we learn about Jesus in this passage, and that third credential is related to his genealogy. Credential number three, Jesus was also the son of Adam. Now, there are two genealogies of Jesus Christ found in the Gospels. One is found in Luke 3, verses 23 to 38, the passage we're looking at today. The other is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Now, I think it's worth acknowledging there are some pretty big differences between those two genealogies in terms of names listed, to the point that some have suggested there's no way that both the genealogies could be correct. But I don't think that's an accurate assessment, is I think the two genealogies can be reconciled. I think the simplest way to reconcile them is to understand Matthew and Luke are tracing the genealogies from a slightly different perspective. Now, historically, some have argued that Matthew is tracing the ancestry of Joseph, while Luke is tracing the ancestry of Mary. But I think the more likely explanation is Matthew is tracing the royal line of succession, the legal line, while Luke is tracing Joseph's actual physical descent, the bloodline. Now, there are a few other potential explanations out there, too, involving Leverite marriages and the intentional skipping of certain generations because of a curse. But the bottom line is, I don't think there are any irreconcilable differences between the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke. I think the two genealogies are just tracing Jesus' line in a slightly different way. But having said that, there are some other noticeable differences, too, between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's. I think those genealogy differences are intentional. For example, Matthew ends his genealogy with Jesus. Luke starts his genealogy with Jesus. They work the opposite way. But perhaps most notably for our purposes this morning, Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham, while Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, to the first man. I think that's purposeful because Matthew and Luke are stressing two slightly different things. Matthew is wanting to stress that Jesus is from the line of David and the line of Abraham. Thus, he's the promised one who would save the people of Israel. But Luke traces his genealogy all the way back to Adam because he's wanting to stress that Jesus is connected to all of mankind and thus qualified to serve as a representative for all people, both Jew and Gentile. In fact, look at the way the genealogy ends again in verse 38. The last line here, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, in declaring Jesus to be the son of Adam and thus ultimately the son of God, Luke is emphasizing that Jesus is not just from the line of Abraham, but he's from the line of Adam. And thus his coming has significance for the entire human race. As Adam was the representative of all the human race, that's what we're saying. Jesus is he is coming from that line. He's not just for the Israelites. So listen, we may read the genealogy of Jesus and think to ourselves, that is a lot of names. And we may think to ourselves, those names are hard to say. I know I think that. But Luke's purpose in including the genealogy is not simply to test our pronunciation skills. There's a pronunciation. That's the thing about that word that's always mystified me. That word itself is hard to say. Needless to say, Luke is not trying to trip us up here. Rather, what he's doing and including all these names, is helping us to see, in this case, in the Gospel of Luke, not only is he the son of David, and thus the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, but he's also the son of Adam, and thus qualified to represent all the human race. So these are the credentials that we see of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was the son of God. He was the son of Adam. But I think it's important for us to understand those credentials have not expired. He's still anointed, He's still the son of God. He's still the son of Adam. Or to say another way, he's still the one to rescue us from our sin. He's still fully God and beloved by the Father. He is still the only hope for all people everywhere. And because he possesses those credentials, we have an obligation and a joy to be able to respond accordingly. 
In the same way that Tanya and I went to Mayo Clinic because the doctors there had certain credentials. In other words, we responded. The credentials that Jesus has should lead us to action too. More specifically, in light of what we read in Luke 3, I think there are three action steps we can take in response to who Jesus is. Action step number one, look to him. Listen, if Jesus is the one anointed by the Spirit to carry out the mission of God, if Jesus is the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah, if he is the forever king from the line of David, if he's the one from the line of Adam who's the hope of all mankind, then there's only one place to look if we want joy and peace and contentment. We need to look to him. I saw a story a couple weeks ago where the owner of the Houston Texans, a professional football team, is being taken to court by one of her sons. Basically, this son is arguing that his mom is not mentally capable of running the team, and so she's suing for the, or he's suing for the rights to take over her guardianship. Of course, in doing so, he's also fighting against his brother, who's the chairman and CEO of the team. It's a gigantic mess. Now, for my part, I have no idea about the merits of the case. I have no opinions as to what should happen. But here's the first thing that popped into my mind when I read that headlines. The first thing that popped into my mind is no matter how much money you possess, it does not buy you peace, it does not buy you contentment, it does not buy you relational harmony. The net worth of that family that owns the Houston Texans is estimated to be around $4 billion, and they can't even get along. And the fact that they can't get along is indicative of the type of world that we live in, broken world. Because the world is broken, people try to escape the brokenness of the world in all kinds of ways. Money, material possessions, sex, alcohol, gambling, pornography, drugs, success, achievement, you name it. People will flock to it if they think it will make them happy. But here's the thing. There's only one way to escape the brokenness of this world. There's only one way to have true peace. There's only one way to find genuine contentment in a world full of discontent. It's through the anointed one. It's through the one the Holy Spirit descended on. Only in Christ will we find joy and contentment in this life and in the one to come. And furthermore, only in Christ will we find forgiveness of sins. And that's the other thing. It's not just that we're trying to escape brokenness here. It's also that we've sinned against the Holy God. Or to say it another way, it's not just the world around us that's broken. We are broken. We are messed up. We've rebelled against the creator of the world, and only through Christ can we have forgiveness of sins. But the good news of the gospel is that through Christ, we can have forgiveness of sins. More than that, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is credited to our account, which practically means that through our union with Christ, and by the way, I think that's a good way of thinking about our relationship with Jesus, we're united to Christ. Through our union with Christ, the voice that once said, you are my beloved son, with you, I'm, I'm well pleased, can now say the same thing of us. It's not because of our own merit. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to our account. So listen, I don't know where you stand with Christ. But if you're here today and you never turn to him in saving faith, let me plead with you this morning. Look to Christ who can take away your sins. And if you do know him, let me plead with you to do the same. Keep looking to him. Keep looking to him. The one who gives joy and peace in a world that is lacking joy and lacking peace. If you know him, look to him by running to his word, by spending time with his people, by coming to him in prayer. Jesus is the anointed one, the one prophesied about in the Old Testament who would come and take away the sins of the world. So look to him. Secondly, action step number two, listen to him. 
Listen to them. Again, there are only two places in the Gospel of Luke in which the divine voice from heaven makes a pronouncement regarding Jesus. One is Luke 3. The other, as I mentioned, is in Luke 9, the transfiguration. And that second account in Luke 9, I think, is instructive for us in terms of thinking about how we might respond to what we read here in Luke 3. So again, here's the divine pronouncement in Luke 9.35, which we already mentioned once before. I'm quoting here from Luke 9.35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now that pronouncement in Luke 9 is very similar to the pronouncement in Luke 3, especially if you compare the original Greek. But the difference is in Luke 9, the voice from heaven adds this command, Listen to him. Which, if you think of it, makes sense. If Jesus really is the Son of God, why would we not listen to him? This last spring, our son Dawson decided that he might be interested in taking up the game of golf. His interest actually originated from a conversation with one of his doctors. This particular doctor knew that Dawson had to give up a lot of sports because of his health issues. And so she encouraged him that other kids with his type of disease have been able to take up golf with success. So that's how it all started. And one of our friends in town heard about this conversation. And it so happens this friend of ours loves golf and is really good at it. He played golf at the NCAA Division I level, went on to become a club pro before he settled into his current career. Bottom line is he loves golf. He loves teaching golf. So out of his kindness, he offered to give Dawson some free lessons. When I went to pick up Dawson at the end of his first lesson, something became quickly apparent to me. As our friend was recapping the lesson he'd given Dawson, just taking five minutes to say, hey, this is what I taught Dawson today, I realized as he was doing that that I know nothing about golf. I'm a once-a-year golfer, and I'm a terrible golfer at that. But in listening to, our friends for, or listening to our friend for five minutes, I quickly realized why. As he was talking with Dawson about the proper way to hold a club and the proper way to stand and the proper posture, I realized I do none of those things correctly. And so my encouragement to Dawson after that lesson was very straightforward. Listen to him. He knows what he's doing. Do not listen to me. If Dawson wanted to be terrible at golf, the best thing he could do is listen to me. If Dawson wants to actually be good, the best thing he could do is listen to our friend. In the same way, I would say this. If you want to make a mess out of your life, if you want to see your family in turmoil, if you want to experience discontentment, then keep listening to the world. Keep listening to your own sinful desires. Keep doing what everyone else is doing. But if you want to experience joy, if you want to experience your family flourishing spiritually, if you want to know the happiness of true contentment, then listen to Jesus. Obey his commands. He is the son of God. He knows all things because he made all things. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. Listen, if Jesus is just another guy, If he's just another religious figure, if he's just another teacher, then by all means, ignore him. But if the voice from heaven is right, if Jesus is the beloved son, if he is the chosen one, then you should listen to him. And if there are areas where you've not been listening, or in other words, areas where you've been living in disobedience, and my guess is, as I say that, if there is an area, it immediately pops into your mind right now then let me encourage you today to repent and come back to obedience, to listen to him, to know who Jesus is, but then to ignore his voice and his commands would be the equivalent of taking my advice about golf, a really bad idea. So that's the second thing that we learn in Light of Jesus' credentials, or second action point in Light of Jesus' credentials, listen to him. Action point number three, tell others about him. Think again about that last line of the genealogy found in Luke 3, verse 38. If Jesus is the son of Adam, 
And the better Adam, who did what Adam could not do, which we'll talk more about next week. And if as the better Adam, he's a representative who brings hope to all people everywhere, then it would seem to me that we would want all people everywhere to hear about that hope. I mean, think about it this way. If they discovered a cure for cancer tomorrow, that would be news that would be broadcast everywhere. And for good reason. Cancer affects people in every area of the world. And directly or indirectly, it affects every person in the world. So a cure for cancer would rightly be proclaimed far and wide. But here's the thing. The good news of Jesus Christ is far better news than even the cure for cancer. Because while cancer may affect our lives here, sin has eternal implications. Cancer may destroy our bodies. Sin destroys our souls. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can remedy our sin issue. It's only because of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection that we can be set free from sin. So the good news of the gospel is good news indeed for all people everywhere because all of us have a sin condition and only Christ can set us free. So listen, whether it's your neighbor across the street or your uncle who lives in western Nebraska or the person you've never met in the country of Turkey or whatever other country you want to pick, our goal should be that all people everywhere have an opportunity to hear about the better Adam. We should want the world to know about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Listen, as we've been reminded even this week at this church with the loss of our brother Aaron, the world that we live in is broken. Sickness and pain and sorrow and death are very much a part of life in this fallen world. And the only hope we have is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, conquering death. And one day he will come again and make things right. And when he returns, for those who know him, there will be no more sorrow or sadness or sickness or death. In this broken world, our only hope is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's point others to him. After all, he's the anointed one the Son of God, the Son of Adam, the hope of the world, the Savior of all mankind, the one worth looking to, the one worth listening to, the one worth proclaiming to all people everywhere, the one who has the credentials that no one else has. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder in Luke chapter 3 of who Jesus is. Anointed by the Holy Spirit, Son of God, Son of Adam, the one who can rescue us from our sins, the representative of all mankind who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, seated at the right hand, will come again. And those who trusted in him have genuine hope. And I pray that we would know that hope today. I pray that we would have a desire to proclaim that hope everywhere. And I pray that we would have a desire to listen to the one who has the credentials. Lord, please help us this morning to remember who he is, to remember who Jesus is, and to put our hope in him, to look to him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.